that mission you know, stayed stayed at the forefront, but became much easier because we had been surrounding ourselves by people that didn't look like us for, you know, for so many years. And so now that deal flow just comes naturally, which is, is really cool. I know a lot of funds have to work really hard to put diversity at the forefront of, you know, their, of their deal flow, but for us, it's just naturally there. When Jamie Schmidt found out she was pregnant, she began paying more attention to the products she was putting on her skin and started making her own body care products to sell at markets and festivals. As her customer base grew and retailers began to approach her, Schmidt's Naturals was on its way to becoming a household name. You're about to hear how Jamie approached her venture one day at a time and what she's learned in transitioning from a solo founder to selling her business to Unilever. Coming up, how Schmidt's Naturals has challenged the stigma around natural products and who they're really made for. Why Jamie says going to market without a perfect product is totally okay. Her lessons learned in understanding the supply sourcing and wholesale processes, how to navigate the flexibility and quickness of a startup. And finally, Jamie shares her experience in starting to offer financial support to underrepresented entrepreneurs with her fund, Color Capital. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jamie, we are so excited to sit down with you today and hear all about your incredible entrepreneurista journey because you have had an incredible ride over the years launching your first startup and now being an investor and involved in many different companies. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. I would love to hear about how you started your first company. I know you started it in your kitchen over 10 years ago, but did you have a background in beauty or in chemistry? How did you start? I did not. My, my company was Schmidt's Naturals, for, for those who don't know. We're most known for our deodorant. And when I started the business, it was more of a hobby. You know, I didn't, I didn't come into this with a really concrete business plan, you know, struck with a, an idea that I thought would make me rich someday. Um, basically, uh, you know, there, there were a few things that, that led to it. I, I was pregnant at the time. Um, so I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin. Um, was also on a pretty strict budget. Yeah, I was working as a social worker, so was my husband. You know, we got pregnant unexpectedly and found ourselves in a position where we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so making things at home, you know, was one way to say it. I also was living in Portland, you know, most creative city in the country. And everybody there is, you know, a maker, creator, artist of some sort. And it was kind of my way to fit in was to, to start making personal care products. One day, I actually, I took a class on how to make shampoo. With that, I just, everything took off, right? I started making everything, my, my lotions, my sunscreens, my shampoos and scrubs and deodorant. And then um, in Portland, there's there's no shortage of opportunity to sell. And again, at this point, you know, I didn't realize the business opportunity, but I did think it would be fun to get out and, and set up a table at the farmer's markets and street festivals. And so my baby was now newly born um, and I'd go out on the weekends and, and, and set up my booth. But in talking to customers, I started to understand there actually was a, a pretty big business opportunity. This was 2010. Natural products were, were not yet mainstream. 
Um, there was still opportunity to innovate in the category, and especially in deodorant. We had a couple of brands at the time, and Tom's Maine, Jason, um, but natural deodorants were still pretty new. So I recognized, uh, you know, there was big opportunity um, for shelf placement, but also to do things a, a little bit differently, you know, really to kind of challenge the stigma around naturals and who naturals are made for, you know, what they have to smell like, what type of ingredients can be used. And so with that, the business was born. What was your next step after that, after you realized that there was a real business opportunity here? Yeah, I still took things pretty slowly. You know, I was still a new mom. So my, you know, obligations and time were spread pretty thin. But, you know, just every week to week, I just was hearing from customers who were excited and then I would get a little more excited. Um, and I actually had some retailers approaching me at these markets too and asking if I was interested in selling my products in their stores. Um, so that was, you know, really validating and also really exciting to know that, you know, I didn't have to work real hard to, to get those first couple of wholesale accounts. It kind of fell into my lap. So I said, you know, why not? And so I had a, I had a lot to learn. Um, I didn't know anything about selling wholesale. You know, of course, there's the pricing strategy that comes into play, you know, the marketing piece and barcodes, right? I had no idea how to go out and get a barcode. <laughs> so there was a lot of, you know, quick research I had to, to do to make it all happen. But I was so excited that, you know, it was, it was fun. Were you still producing your own products at home at this time or did you yeah. work? Okay. Yep. I was making on my stovetop. We had a really small home, you know, about 700 to 800 square feet. And then when my baby was napping, I would just work. And so, you know, most moms are sleeping while the baby naps, but I was just too excited to sleep. <laughs> it was the only time I could work. And his bedroom was right off the kitchen. And so I had to kind of tiptoe around and, and be quiet. But yeah, with those early wholesale accounts too, you know, I would, I would bring my baby with me to, to drop off product because my, my husband was working during the day. And so I would go out on my little deliveries and you know, carry him with me. And so it's fun because he's always been part of the business from day one. When did the business turn into more than, you know, just working out of the home and creating everything yourself? When did you realize you needed to bring on outside resources? And did you raise money for your company or were you always bootstrapped? I never raised. And I think partly because I, I did take it so slowly in those couple of years that there wasn't a lot of pressure to, to get a big sum of money. It was really like a day at a time, right? So I would embrace the opportunity that was right in front of me, continue to look for more opportunities to sell. But you know, in those early days, I did have a lot of opportunity to kind of fall into my lap with these stores. But then I sort of got this itch to like, okay, you know, I've, I've, I've expanded locally, like what more can I do? And that's when I really kind of kicked things into gear and started putting a little effort into um, some promotion. I had a lot of word of mouth from influencers. YouTube was huge back then. So people were talking about the product. So then I saw opportunity to build out a website too, where, where customers could purchase. But I think, you know, the real turning point was just the repeat customers, right? People coming back and, and, and wanting more and asking me for you know, new fragrances and things and just you know, where, where else can I find your product? And just the continuing you know, buildup of excitement. When you were making this product on your own in your kitchen, how much were you able to produce each day? And how did you figure out like the right formulas? That process to me yeah. sounds so like, like it might be so complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. I, you know, but I, without having a whole, you know, no, no business partners, no investors to, to answer to, I had room to fail, right. And start over and keep going until it felt perfect to me. As I mentioned, I'm not a chemist, I'm a scientist. And so it really was just you know, me sort of jumping in and experimenting. I want to step back a bit and talk about the, the bootstrapping piece again, because I think that's really important. And I, you know, people ask all the time, like, how was I able to do that? And it was really 
recycling the profits back into the business, right? And just being really conscious of how you're spending your dollars. And so I wasn't, you know, paying for these really fancy marketing campaigns. You know, every there was intention behind everything that I purchased. And yeah, that looked a little bit different as the business scaled. And we can get into that a little bit later. But uh, I, I I am a big proponent of, of growing, you know, on your own terms and, and not bringing on capital if you don't need to. Um, but back to the your last question about uh, formulating, you know, that that was a work in process over many years. And my formula continued to improve. I went to market with a product that I knew wasn't perfect. And I think that's the key for a lot of companies is, or a lot of founders is that we get so tied up, you know, concerned. My product's not, it's absolute best. I can't go to market yet, right? Until it's just hundred percent perfect. But what is, you know, what is perfect, right? Until you start talking to your customers, you don't really know what perfect means. Um, and that'll change too. So I always encourage founders, you know, if you're thinking about launching and your, you know, your product is close and you feel like it's good enough, just get it out there. And then, you know, it's, it's going to evolve. What were some of the biggest challenges early on in those first few years in business? So many, I think, you know, one is, was just learning. Like I, I didn't have a, a background in business. I actually had a business degree, <laughs> which I got in college. So I had, you know, a bit of knowledge, but no, no hands-on experience. And that's so different, right? You can get your education in business, but it doesn't, it doesn't arm you to, to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family, you know, so just learning, like just even the, the terminology, right? That that was being thrown at me sometimes. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. This was constantly Googling everything. And the cash piece, you know, bootstrapping is not easy. There's just, you're constantly strapped for money. Hires, you know, once I did start hiring, I think you asked earlier when I knew it was time to bring on an employee. And that was what I felt just so stretched thin that I, you know, couldn't do anything more. And that that's hard. That first hire, I think, was the hardest because I has had such control over everything. And you know, giving that up to somebody new was was not easy. So I hired a, a friend, actually, it was a friend of a friend. And so that, that helped a little bit, um, you know, made me feel a little bit less pressure to be you know, a certain kind of boss. And the two of us sort of grew together. And then from there, you know, continuing to build the team was always, always really challenging. What did that first hire do? What was, was it her? What was her role? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a man. I brought a man, okay. a man um, <laughs> that helped with um, production. And so he was working in my studio. I had a little studio behind the house uh, where I'd make the deodorant. So it was perfect. So he could go in there. He had privacy, plays music and just make. And so, you know, I was constantly in there doing quality control and working through issues. Production of natural products does pose a lot of issues when, you know, the temp there's temperature fluctuations, you're not using chemical stabilizers and things. And so we were often troubleshooting, you know, problems with product. And, and so that was, that was his job. And then I, Quickly after that, I hired another person to come in and he helped with shipping in my garage. And he was supposed to work less than five hours a week, but within a couple of weeks, he was you know, basically full-time because <laughs> the business really started to grow quickly. I'm so fascinated by the uh, product development process. So for anyone thinking about you know, going into their kitchen and trying to formulate something. And I know you did take that class. Where do you go and get ingredients? Yeah, that yeah, so much Google, right? <laughs> Google is my friend for sure. There are a lot of uh, suppliers out there where you can, you know, buy the basics, but really once you start producing in volume, that's when you have to dig a little deeper to really refine those relationships, make sure you're getting the best pricing, you know, highest quality. But a lot of it's just yeah, research, some word of mouth. If you start meeting other entrepreneurs or makers, you're maybe getting some support from them. Where do you find your products? But you know, over time, too, you might outgrow your suppliers. So you might have you know one supplier that you've been depending on for a couple of years, but then all of a sudden your volumes you know have increased. With Schmitz, you know, we started 
selling in retail retailers like Target, Costco, Walmart, right? So we have these huge volumes later um, and your suppliers can't always keep up. And so then you're constantly looking for new ones. And that's a challenge. I always tell people to make sure you have more than one supplier because people, you know, they'll, they'll run out <laughs> of ingredients. And I've, I've learned that the hard way where, you know, we had shipments that were supposed to be delivered and didn't arrive on time. And then we we're scrambling to find other suppliers. So that's, that's certainly a takeaway for listeners is to have more than one supplier for all your ingredients. How did you handle moments like that when it's, yeah. you know, you go into this crisis mode and you're supposed to get this delivery and it's, it doesn't come and they can't, they can't help you. How do you handle those moments? Yeah. I mean, it definitely feels like the end of the world, right? There's a big problem, but you put things in perspective and do what you can do. And, you know, generally customers are understanding if you are late on shipment, you know, just being transparent. I know some companies would rather just go quiet and kind of wait, you know, and then ship the order late. But I think, you know, it's really important to just be upfront with your customers. Hey, we ran into this problem. You know, thank you for your patience. Your product will be there in a week. And here's a discount code to use on your next order. Yeah, definitely agree. Being transparent with your customers and having conversations with them is so important. And that's how you build that loyalty and that, that connection. Right. So I always say too, like, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of founders, anytime there's an internal, you know, operational glitch or setback, you know, they freak out that, you know, the, but, but realistically, like the customers are only seeing from the outside, like they don't see all the stresses and the setbacks and the challenges and crazy things that happen behind the scenes. So that's one thing I like to remind people too, is, you know, it might feel huge and heavy to you, but other people probably don't even notice, right? Totally. They only, <laughs> they only see what they have access to, yeah. be able to see and not the behind the scenes of the, the inner workings for right. sure. Jamie, I'd love to hear a little bit about the process of getting into these retailers, because I know a lot of our entrepreneurs have created products and they are trying to figure out how did they get into Target? How did they get into Walmart? What is that process mm -hmm. like and, and what should they expect? Yeah, I, you know, I made it sound easy for those first couple of retailers at the farmers markets that approached me. But after that, you know, I, I really had to, to hustle to get into the account. So number one, you have to truly believe in your product and be persistent that it, in knowing that it belongs in that store, right? So, you know, for me, that looked like thinking about who my dream retailer was, you know, and that for in the beginning years, it was, it was Whole Foods. And so I started thinking, okay, what stores might lead up to, to me getting into Whole Foods? Um, and then that made me think of stores like, you know, natural food co-ops. And so, you know, it was really like kind of this laddering up process. So making a case for one store and then going one step beyond that, but always taking my sales numbers with me to prove, hey, you know, I did great in this store. And now can I get a place on your store shelves? And, you know, I know a lot of companies today are starting out D2C, like really strong internet sales, which sometimes allows them to sort of skip right to their dream retailer. You know, because they have these really strong um, numbers from their website. And that's, that's effective too. But for me, it took a bit before I really built out the website. And so mine, you know, I depended a lot on retail where it's okay, I'm successful in this store now, will you take a chance on me? Brokers are really critical, especially for some of those bigger stores like Target. They often are the only ones that Target wants to talk to, right? Like we only work through brokers, so find a broker and then we'll talk. But the way to, to connect with them is, is trade shows, specifically in the natural products industry. There's a, there's a trade show called Natural Products Expo. And anybody that's that's building in the space should definitely be going to that trade show. There's a lot of a lot of brokers, a lot of distributors, and you'll make connections with retailers there too. What was the name of the trade show? Natural Products Expo. They have a West and an East. There's one that's held in LA every year. And then one that's generally in the East Coast too. The LA one is huge. 
Do regular consumers go to those trade shows just to Not see products or no? Shows. Those okay. are specific for um, retailers and brokers and distributors. Um, but but I also did a ton of trade shows that were direct to the customer, like the farmer's market, but then also a lot of like craft shows and some, some of these like indie marketplaces. You know, Schmidt's deodorant was was a craft in the earliest years. And so I was able to to have tables at like the craft shows next to you know, people who were making clothing or jewelry or you know greeting cards. So that, that's fun too, to, to have that opportunity as a maker, right? Any other tips you can share from the early days when you were at the farmer's markets for our entrepreneurs who have something that they just, a product they want to test out to see if, you know, the market's interested in it? Yeah, I think just keep an open mind about who your customer is. I think um, for companies like, like, you know, natural deodorant, there was always this assumption that the, the customer was a certain type of person who shopped at, you know, a certain retailer or uh, lived a certain type of lifestyle. But what really got me ahead, I think, was just knowing that anybody could be my customer. So if I saw, I don't know, maybe an older man walking by the booth, right? Like I would go after him just as much as I would the, you know, the, the young mom with the kid in the stroller. Like I just, I think sometimes we close our minds to who our customer might be. And so always, always keep an open mind there. What was your pitch when people would come up to to the booth? Yeah, generally I would just, you know, they would look and say, oh, natural deodorant. And I would say, what kind of deodorant do we use? That would be the first question I'd ask. And it was funny. Oftentimes people didn't know. And I always saw that as a great opportunity because if they didn't really have a brand that came to mind, like, oh, they need, they need one, you know, that they, that they can fall in love with. And it's funny because deodorant's not a sexy topic. And so some people would get uncomfortable. Other people would just spill their whole history of, you know, deodorant usage and the problems they've had. And so, but I always encourage founders, you know, just embrace those conversations and, kind of follow the customer's lead, right? They'll talk as much as they want. You know, what's so interesting. I'm in a bunch of these mom Facebook groups and I'm, I'm also into all of the natural products now. And similar to you, I became super interested in them actually when I was trying to get pregnant and realizing how important it is to know what you're putting on your body and in your body. But in all of these Facebook groups I'm in, I would say once a week, someone's posting like what natural deodorant do you use? And like tons of responses. I see Schmitz mentioned in there, in there all the time. So I think, you know, now, I mean, you started this so early 10 plus years ago, but the market has definitely changed in the the natural product industry and people really are are aware now. So yeah. it's, it's awesome. And it's but, funny, there's still huge opportunity. Um, Schmitz did a, or had come across a survey recently where it showed like less than 10% of people were, were using naturals. And so even though it's become a lot more mainstream, there's still a huge opportunity there. So there's a lot of education that comes with it. You know, some people are just skeptical. They hear natural and they assume it doesn't work. You know, there's sometimes the price points are higher or again, there's this, there's this assumption that it's for a certain type of customer. So I like that it's become a lot more mainstream, but I also love that there's still opportunity to introduce more people. Coming up, you'll hear why Jamie says lack of fear is a priceless advantage in starting your own business. So you started in 2010 in your kitchen. At what year did you take the production outside of your kitchen? And was there a particular order that resulted in you having to find new methods of manufacturing? I moved manufacturing spaces four times over three years. And, uh, you know, as you know, it started in my, my tiny little kitchen. Um, and I maxed that out as, as long as I could. You know, we had boxes of deodorant pile up in, you know, every corner of the house. <laughs> and then it got to a point where, all right, if we're going to continue doing this, you know, it makes sense to look outside the house. 
And I was fortunate that there was a space uh, nearby my home that was up for lease. There was just this random building. They had, there was a pet shop in the building. It was a paper shredder next door. And then there was this tiny little space that could be used for anything. And so I thought, Ooh, that, that could be my production space. Um, and so that was in let's see, two, like about three years into the business. Um, and I took my, my two employees that had been working at my house and you know, they came over there with me. Um, and then from there, um, you know, things really started to take off. I also had a feature on TV around that time on, on Fox. Um, and that resulted in a lot of website orders and things then just kind of picked up and never slowed down. But it was good timing because I had the bigger space. I was able to bring, you know, start to build out my team a little bit more. But, you know, being bootstrapped, you can't just hire a bunch of people at once. And so I, you know, would start somebody part-time and sort of increase their hours. And I think that's one of the trickiest parts of, of running a bootstrap business is paying your employees and, you know, knowing when to make them full-time versus part-time because you want the help, right? But it's like, what can you afford? And it's just a balancing act constantly. But we, we were in that space oh, about a year and a half. And had expanded once while we were in there. I um, had to add on another little extra room. But let's see, about a year and a half after that, we ended up getting a bigger space, a little more legit, about 10,000 square feet. And that was in like a, a real established business park. So moving into that was was definitely like sort of the next phase of the business. But it was really exciting because I remember buying the conference table and you know, all the things that come along with it. And sort of like, wow, I'm like playing house here, right? And like building this this factory. and but the machinery, I think, was the biggest challenge. Like, because you know, I in the other space, I was able to increase my pot size, and we have had this little hand crank labeler, and things were still pretty small. Um, but once I moved into the bigger space, I had opportunity to to upgrade my equipment too. So that meant doing a lot of research into what types of machines I would need. And you know, at that point, I really had a choice. I could have moved to contract manufacturers, right, or make this investment in these machines and just keep building in house. But I just I couldn't imagine giving up the production. It was something that was so personal to me, you know, it started in my kitchen. So I was so close to the product. And so passing it off to another manufacturer just didn't feel right. Um, so I made that choice to just to sort of wing it and grow the factory. And, you know, as we continued to grow, that meant continuing to upgrade machines and knowing how much space we needed. I think that was the most challenging part was predicting how much, how much space you need and how much inventory you want to keep on hand versus, you know, how much you want to produce by pro demand. And so, that's a whole, that's probably a whole podcast in itself. I'm sure. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll, we'll have to do a follow-up on manufacturing. Yeah, I go sure. do it in my book, kind of from maker to manufacturer, that whole journey, what that entails and all the challenges that come along with that. Did you ever have a business plan or did you ever put one together once you started? I never had a, you know, an official plan written out, especially in the earliest years. It was really just sort of embracing the opportunity that was right in front of me. But as the business, you know, got more sophisticated, I had to put some put some planning into it. But still, I was never looking really far ahead. I think that probably could have thrown me off a little bit. It's um, very overwhelming to to think about like what your end goal is. And so it was more like, okay, what are my goals for this week? Or maybe in a month? And then having this bigger vision, right? Like I mentioned, dream retailers. And once I had gotten that Whole Foods account my dream retailer then became Target, right? So having these big sort of goals and visions, but not like a real concrete plan on how to get there. Did you know that you ultimately wanted to get acquired or have a partner? No, no, that was never in my thinking. We had been approached a few times by little companies just sending letters in the mail, like, oh, I'd love to acquire your business. And I just throw them in the garbage, right? And didn't think much of it. But once Schmidt's really hit mass market, Target, Costco, Walmart, 
we were, we became pretty strapped for cash. And that was the point where I was like, okay, <laughs> we either need to raise capital or bring on you know, a bigger partner with, that has these resources because um, we can't keep bootstrapping this. I had taken out one line of credit um, along the way, actually two that were helpful in um, you know producing some of that inventory up front. But once we really hit those shelves, it was, it was time to make a decision. Um, so throughout that process of starting to entertain conversations with VCs and hedge funds, we had the interest from Unilever and then a couple other big strategics um, entered the picture and they were, they were interested in, in the acquisition as well. Um, so no, throughout the growth of the business, it was never my thinking, but once we hit that point of you know, really being strapped for cash, I realized not just the potential of getting the, the money, but having the support and resources of a big conglomerate like Unilever could, could do a lot for the company. What was the process like having conversations with Unilever and other funds? Did you have someone you could go to for advice to figure out this process? Because I know it can definitely be very intense. Yeah, we had a broker, actually Goldman Sachs was involved. And so they were great because they were the middle person who was able to you know, negotiate things for us, explain things, tell us you know, what, what they needed. And so we had, you know, tons of phone calls with Unilever throughout the process, but it was nice to have sort of the, the middleman there, you know, helping coordinate things. At the time that you sold, how many employees did you have? We had around 150. Um, and that was uh, mostly in our manufacturing across two ships we had at that point. Um, Unilever did not purchase the manufacturing piece of Schmidt, so they kept um, the brand team, the marketing, you know, and everything else, um, but they, we ended up outsourcing the production. The timing of that worked well because I had I actually had taken on a co-packer about a year before the acquisition as backup. You know, I we couldn't meet all the demand in-house. And I also started thinking, you know, how sustainable is this long term? And what if you know something terrible happens to my factory? Like what can we do? Um, so I had made preparations to um, you know eventually you know, trans, transition that manufacturing. But you know, the great thing about keeping that manufacturing in-house was that you had so much control over things like limited edition offerings and and once you start working with an outside co-packer, you know, you lose, you lose that flexibility that you have as, you know, as a startup. Can you share a little bit about the learning lessons from, you know, after the sale, you've now gone from being a solo founder to now being part of this big company that we all know Unilever and giving up control. What is that like? And, and lessons that you learned from that? I think the first thing I learned was that as a startup, you move very quickly. But once you join a family like Unilever, it's, you know, things, things slow down. Um, so that took a little bit of getting used to, you know, there's a lot of processes and procedures in place and new expectations that you, you know, you just um, didn't have when you were growing quickly as a startup, but it's all for the better. You know, I think having, having them more control in the systems ends up being beneficial for the company long-term, but it, but it's certainly an adjustment period. How did your role change once you did get acquired? When we started talking to Unilever, you know, it was important for me that I stay involved in the brand. You know, that was a non-negotiable. And, but I, you know, there were options for what that could look like. Could I stay on in operations or leading the company? Did I want to sort of step back from operations and become more of a spokesperson? And so we came to an agreement that that felt good for, for both sides. And so I'm still very tied to the brand, but, but I'm not in the, the day-to-day headache, <laughs> the operation. And so we, it's been, gosh, like four years now since the, since the acquisition, um, still working with the brand, um, mostly advising on some of the product development, supporting their international expansion. And it's just really cool to see the brand continue to thrive. There's some really great leadership on the team now. And yeah, I'm super happy to stay involved. 
And I know you've now gone on to start your own fund, but love to hear about why you decided to start it and, and what it's been like. Yeah, it's not something that I had put a lot of thought into when I was growing Schmitz, right? I never thought, oh, someday I'm going to have an investment fund. But after the acquisition, I was approached by a lot of founders who were looking for advice on things. And I started to realize that, you know, I, I had a lot to teach and a lot to offer, not just in terms of advice, but also in capital. So my husband, Chris, and I uh, decided to start the fund. Uh, Chris was was there alongside me growing Schmitz. And so together we had gained a lot of operational experience that could be valuable to these brands that we're investing in. So we started um, Color. And our goal was to, um, you know, initially we set out to really offer financial support to underrepresented entrepreneurs. We just felt like there was so much opportunity there that was being overlooked. And as the fund continued to grow, that mission you know, stayed stayed at the forefront, but became much easier because we had been surrounding ourselves by people that didn't look like us for, you know, for so many years. And so now that deal flow just comes naturally, which is, is really cool. I know a lot of funds have to work really hard to put diversity at the forefront of, you know, their, of their deal flow, but for us, it's just naturally there. And so that's been really fun. We've invested in close to 25 companies now and all in consumer products. And that's where our passion is. And that's where we can have the most impact. Um, we, we look for companies that want to really build out their distribution kind of like Schmitz did. So we call, we call it omni-channel, right? When you have um, retail distribution across different channels. So it's your website, it's a mass market, it's some of the smaller stores and international. Um, so that we're able to really plug in there and help some of these brands um, grow their distribution. What are some of the brands that you're excited about that you've invested in? Yeah, there are a lot. House, have you heard of House? It's a, a spirits brand, low alcohol beverage, uh, really cool branding. Uh, we actually have invested in quite a quite a number of beverage companies. It's it's really trending right now across you know, sparkling waters and and alcohol and some of these more functional beverages. Um, so Recess is another one um, that has um, a really cool magnesium product that they launched recently. Pop Shop Live is is one of my favorites. It's a it's a live streaming platform where founders can can share their products through this feed. Um, it's a great way to be discovered. So if, if People have a product they want to get out there. Definitely check out Pop Shop Live. I'm looking. I'm looking it up. Yeah, I'm looking it up it's here. So no, cool. that's yeah. good. That's awesome. Yeah. Very. You cool. also started Supermaker. I would yeah. love to know more about that. We also started a, a platform called Supermaker. Um, this was really active during COVID. It was a great way to bring founders, you know, just some a place to to come together and, and find resources to support them through things that were happening around COVID, like building a brand during a crazy pandemic. And so we put out a lot of content, um, you know, articles and things to help founders build. We also created a, a grant program through Supermaker where we awarded two founders a grant of $50,000 to build their businesses during COVID. And then through that, we also built out this um, really strong mentor network. So we had mentors like Mark Cuban, Rebecca Minkoff um, joining on to, to support um, some of the founders that we were working with as well. And I launched a book also by the name of Supermaker. Um, and that book tells my story of growing Schmitz from the kitchen up to the acquisition by Unilever with tangible takeaway advice. So my goal in writing it was really to, you know, not just tell the story of Schmitz, but to tell it in a way that people could learn from all my setbacks and mistakes and wins and just really just candidly telling my story. I really, you know, I, I think there's opportunity for anybody to become an entrepreneur. And I I think in, with a story like mine is just like the perfect example of that if you just have a product you believe in, 
and the passion and commitment to making it happen that anybody can do it. So that, that was my goal in writing the book was to inspire people to, to understand that potential in themselves. I love that. What was the process like writing the book? How long did it take? Yeah, it was, it was fun to, I think the best part of it was just going back to those early years and kind of reliving the experience and also just seeing how much I had grown, you know, as a individual, as an entrepreneur, the process took about a year and a half, a lot of digging into emails and then remembering, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, turning all that into a book. When I first started, I asked myself, do I really have enough content to share? But then as the story started to come together, I had, I had so much. And so it was, it was a fun process for sure. Well, we're definitely going to have to read your book. And for all of our listeners, we will link out to your book in our show notes. So it'll be easy for, for everyone to find. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you had first started your business? I'm asked that question a lot. And I, it's funny. I always say, I don't think anything. I think the naivety that I had, you know, just the sort of being oblivious to things and kind of just being excited was, was an asset. I think sort of the less that you know, the better equipped you are sometimes, because I, knowing how much I know now, I think I would be scared (laughs) in some ways. You know, it's important to, to know what you're getting into in building business, but to really obsess over like knowing every detail, I think can just be an obstacle in a lot of ways. Trust your intuition. I've, I've leaned on that so much in growing my business. And I think that's still very important for founders. I think it's a mix of your intuition and then just really listening to your customers. I think that was just my secret to, to success. For our founders who are thinking about raising capital or currently raising capital, especially right now where so many things are are being done remotely, any tips for how they can reach out to you? Best tips for pitching? What do you look for? Yeah, I'm always available. I love to hear from people through DMs on Twitter or Instagram. Um, you can also reach out to Color, my fund at hello at color.capital. Tips for pitching. I always tell people don't obsess too much over having a really lengthy deck. You know, just really hit the most important points. What problem are you solving? Why are you the best person to solve the problem? What does your team look like? Maybe you don't have a team and that's okay too. I, I encourage people also to not get too hung up on credentials. I think a lot of times as new founders, we feel this need to really prove that we're qualified to be entrepreneurs, right? So we pull these things out of our past and try to present ourselves in a way, you know, to make us look qualified. But really for me as an investor and just based on my own experience, it's more about just the passion for the product and the belief behind the business and just showing that, you know, the category, you know, I think that that's really key for me is like, if you're playing in in the food space, for example, let's say you're making crackers, just really knowing who your competition is, where your opportunity is, and you know how you can excel in that category. I think that's, that's the key. Up next, why Jamie's known for the quote, say yes now, then figure out how. All right, Jamie, we're going to do a fun little segment we've been doing, some rapid fire questions. So we're going to ask you a question. The first thing that comes to your mind, like one or two words, are you ready? Yep. Actually, this one's three words. Describe yourself in three words. Relatable, humble, committed. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? I want to perfect my tennis skills. Me too. Yeah, I play. I already play, but I want to be like a pro. So I'm I'm putting more more energy into that. Uh, We're going to have to connect you to Jen on our Entreprenista team. She is. She is a tennis pro. That's her thing. (laughs) So when you're in New York, you guys can meet up. She'll give you a lesson. (laughs) 
What is your most used emoji when you send a text? The upside down smiley face. Ah, I actually just started yeah, using that what, one. What does one. that, can someone tell me what that means? I, for me, it's like something feels like a little bit goofy or yeah. like I'm fun of myself. Or, right? Yeah, it's hard to describe, but I feel like it's very fitting. Yes, I, <laughs> I love that. What is the app on your phone that you can't live without? Probably TikTok right now. Interesting. Are you looking for like a functional app? That's no, no, no. Well, we're that's my next question, actually. What is your favorite tech tool or business solution that's helped you? You guys, I'm I'm a big nerd with keeping notes, but handwritten notes or the notes app on my phone. I don't have like and I'm open to ideas. Sometimes I feel like it's this late in my life when I start now, but like people have organizational tools they want to share. But for me, it's literally the notes app on my phone and handwritten notes. I got my entrepreneurs notebook here. Yay, oh, good. You got it. <laughs> a lot of times when I do podcasts, I, I'm inspired by things. I'm like, oh, I should talk about that more than all the times. <laughs> Thank you. Well, when you finish all those papers, let me know. We'll send you good. more. All right. <laughs> do you have a hidden talent? Oh my gosh. I want to say it's like singing. I'm constantly making up songs and driving my family crazy, but I don't know if it's a talent, but it's a hidden sort of desire to express myself. I love that. I grew up doing musical theater, so I'm I'm big oh, into really? big into singing. Yes. Oh. All right, our final rapid fire question: If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mm. Time travel. I think. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to go back in time or go ahead? I think I would go back. <laughs> I'm afraid to go forward. Oh, I hear you. I hear you on that one. <laughs> Well, Jamie, I'd love to hear about your new TV adventure that you were just telling us about. How did that happen and and what is it about? Yeah, I'll be on this show called Going Public. It's going to stream on Entrepreneur Media and it comes out later this fall. It's a show that follows founders as they're raising capital and they're raising through Regulation A+. For people who don't know what that is, um, basically investors, or excuse me, viewers can invest while they watch from their couch. So you don't have to be an accredited investor. Anybody who's 18 and older in the US can invest. So it's super cool. It's a big, it's a great opportunity for brands to gain exposure. It's leveling the playing field for investors who otherwise don't have opportunity to invest in some of these companies. And my role on the show is to be a mentor. So I'm going to help some of these brands as they scale their companies. And um, there's five brands that are currently scheduled to be featured and they're all really cool and very different. So I'm, I'm excited. I've learned a lot just through the process of, of working with these founders. That's so, so exciting. You have a lot of exciting projects that you're working on. What does a typical day look like for you? Waking up, having my coffee outside, um, try to get a workout in before anything else gets my attention. Every day looks a little different, but generally there's a call with a you know, potential brand that I might invest in, or maybe a brand I'm already invested in, some press, like podcasts like this. You know, my, my son has been home for the summer and also throughout COVID, so he's become a very prominent part of my everyday. It'll be weird when he goes back to school. <laughs> um, he's 11, you know, so the two of us are our buddies and try to make time together. And you know, my husband and I do everything together too. So three of us, happy little family working from home. We recently moved down to San Diego from Portland. And so still learning, learning the city here and enjoying the nice weather and, and swimming and playing tennis. Definitely have the best weather in San Diego. Yeah, that's that's for morning. sure. When did you move there? Uh, February. Oh, re- very recent move. Yeah, very recent. Courtney and I both moved. We did a kind of a pandemic move too. We're both down in Florida now. We moved from oh, New York to Florida. 
Oh, wow. That's a big move. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. we made the move as well. Are you um, in Miami? I'm in Miami. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's like, yeah. This whole, there's a whole movement to Miami. I, I actually think I started the movement. No. Probably did. <laughs> I, I moved here in June. And then, like, three months later, everyone else moved here. So, yeah, Courtney and I moved down June 1st of 2020. So we were early, we were early adopters. I'm, I'm a little bit north in, in Palm Beach Gardens. But yeah, I've been running, running everything remotely now. That's just the, the way of the world for yeah. many, many businesses. What would you say you're most grateful for every day? Oh boy. I think just everybody who helped me get where I am today, you know, growing Schmidt's or so many employees and even retailers and just all the customers, just everybody who helped contribute to my success wouldn't be here with without thousands of people. Any other tips you can share on how you manage everything now, multiple businesses, managing obviously family as well. How do you how do you do it all? What are your what are your secrets? Yeah, yeah. I think most important is just cutting myself slack. It's hard for people to do, right? We have these such high standards for ourselves and I think we just need to understand that like maybe there's a day that kind of goes wasted or, you know, maybe we don't have to check off every single thing on our list this week. And so it's just cutting, cutting myself slack has been just really key for me going to business and, and now today. And I'm really to my head. Is there a favorite mantra or quote that defines your work ethic? Mm-hmm. I've been known for, for the quote, say yes now, then figure out how um, I go deep into that in my book. And basically it's just about embracing every opportunity and, you know, not letting fear get in the way. I do think it's also healthy to know when to say no, but but my idea there is more if if it, if you're saying no because you're afraid of it, like I challenge, I challenge that. Say yes, you're gonna, you'll fail at a handful of things, but you'll likely come out ahead. Was there know. anything that you said yes to that you regretted later or really learned from because you maybe made right. a mistake? Um, yeah, you know, there, there were some opportunities in business that I probably wasn't ready for right away. And I was you know, excited to say yes. And then I would be scrambling to try to, you know, make enough product to, to meet the need and things like um, sampling boxes, right? Like um, there's subscription boxes where I would donate, you know, 100,000 sticks of deodorant because it seemed like a really cool opportunity. But then I'm like, oh, wow, this is distracting from other things. And, you know, ultimately it, it pays off, right? Because the customers have to try the product and turn into repeat customers and things. But and then there's, you know, some probably relationship things. I had a, a business partner that some regrets there, but we, that's a, again, a story for, for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, my final question for you, Jamie, is what does being an entrepreneur mean to you? Um, I think just being unwilling to settle, just continuing to believe in yourself and knowing when to block out the noise and, and trusting yourself. So important. Definitely trusting yourself is is the key. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your story and journey with us and all of our listeners. It's so inspiring what you have been able to accomplish. And I know what a journey it's been. So it's, it's really incredible. So thank you so much for being here. Where can everyone find you and follow you and buy your book? And then for those who are interested in reaching out to you, if they're raising money, what's the best way to reach out? I'm on all socials, so LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and it's just Jamie Schmidt, J-A-I-M-E. For email, hello at color.capital is great. If you want to send a deck, um, we'll definitely get that. And my book is available everywhere books are sold. So Amazon, um, all the indie bookstores, the bigger bookstores. If anybody reads it, and reach out. Let me know, and I'd love to hear your, your feedback. 
Amazing. And we'll be posting all of those links in our show notes so you guys can all check it out. Jamie, thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at Entrepreneurs. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Mm-hmm.